What is holding you back from the life that God created you to live? Are you being held captive by doubts, fears, or sins? Like the Israelites, we can get comfortable in captivity. Staying with the familiar can seem easier than moving forward in faith. The redemptive story of the Exodus reminds us that God wants to lead us out of captivity and that we can trust God as we journey to freedom. Well, we've come to the end of this sermon series on Exodus. Next Sunday is Commission Sunday, and we hope that you'll come back and be a part of Commission Sunday, either here or online. Please join us. It's an important day as we acknowledge and partner with God in making disciples all over the world. As we said earlier, there's a lot going on in our world, and the world needs Jesus, and we have people, and we send people throughout the world to share the gospel, and we want to be a part of that. So be here next Sunday for Commission Sunday. We're going to start a new series next Sunday on Jesus, on his identity, called I Am. We're going to look at scripture and see exactly how Jesus identifies himself, because who Jesus is is so important for all of us. And so let's, let's just see what Jesus says about himself, who he is. And so we'll start that series next Sunday. We invite you to be back for that series. And although today we do finish up this series on Exodus, that doesn't mean our journey to freedom is over. Yes, God delivered us from sin and death, from the captivity we had because sin had control over us. God delivers us from that captivity when he clothes us with Christ in baptism. But then that journey is, in many respects, a lifelong journey. Like it was for the Israelites, it doesn't happen overnight. God had a a home for them. God had a place for them. But the journey was important. The journey to get to that land of promise was important, and it is important for us. And for most of us, it is a lifelong journey to freedom, being set free in Christ and by Christ. But thankfully, we don't travel that path alone, do we? We don't have to take that journey to freedom by ourselves, the independence that Dan just talked about. We don't have to do that alone. God is with us. And he may not be with us as a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire, but he is with us as he allows his spirit to dwell in and among us. We also have each other, other sojourners on this path, on this journey to freedom, to encourage us, to lift us up, to hold us accountable, and for us to do the same for them. So we travel to freedom together. If you have a Bible, you might open it up to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus 34 will be our text this morning as we talk about a covenant of love. There is a difference between a contract and a covenant. Do you understand the difference? There is a difference. Like many of you, I have signed a contract with a cell phone carrier. That cell phone carrier provides products and services to us. And then once a month, they post or send a bill that is way too long and way too hard to decipher. I don't know about your cell phone bill, but man, mine is just hard to understand what's all happening there and all the different charges. But at the end of the day, my job as a part of this contract, because I signed on the dotted line, my job is to pay for those products and services they provide. That's how contracts work. 
Both parties gain something, and both parties have to keep their end of the agreement or what happens to the contract? It is voided. It is torn up. And I, I, I'll confess, I didn't read all the fine print. That's the thing about contracts. There's always a lot of fine print. It's too small, too long. I didn't read it. But I, I did check the little box that said I read and agreed to it. I will confess right now, I did that. You ever feel guilty clicking that box when you know you didn't read it? But I did, I clicked it. And I was saying, I agree to the terms of this contract. And I'm going to keep my end of the deal. And I'm going to rely on this company to keep their end of the deal. And if either one of us don't do that, then the contract is voided. You see, that's not a covenant. Big difference. That's not a covenant. I entered into a covenant on May the 11th, 1991. <laughs> Let's get that right. When I, when I stood before God and my family and my friends and I pledged, I do until death do us part. Who are those young kids in that picture? <laughs> I'm glad the picture is dark and you can't really see the mullet that I have. <laughs> but there is lots of hair in that picture, right? <laughs> It was back in the day when everyone had big hair, right? We didn't know that hairspray was tearing up the ozone. I don't know why. Everyone had big hair back then. But on that day, we both stood in front of everyone and before God, and we pledged our love and faithfulness to each other. And we exchanged rings. We said vows. We even had, now they don't have these anymore in weddings, but we even had a unity candle. Remember the unity candle? Right? I think our moms came up and lit two candles on the side and then at some point in the ceremony we went over and used those candles to light the one candle signifying the, the coming together of, of two people of two families and we had all of these rituals and all these symbols that were a part of this covenant relationship we didn't sign a contract although we did have to if you're married you had to sign a marriage license so that the state you're married in would see you as legally married. That's important. That seems important. But there wasn't a contract. There wasn't fine print. You see, there's a difference. There's a difference. In a contract and in a covenant, there are expectations of both parties, right? There are expectations. I mean, we stood up and made vows. We said, I will, I will, I will, sickness and in health, till death do us part. There are expectations, there are promises, there are commitments made. But when you're in a contract, it's usually about what you receive, what you get out of the deal. That's how you approach a contract. What am, what am I going to, to get? But a covenant's different. A covenant is more about what, what do we become and what can I provide? You see, there's a big difference there. And I have seen husbands and wives enter into a marriage covenant with a contract mindset. And when they do that, the marriage is usually doomed. Because they go into that relationship with that mindset of what can I get? What can I receive? What's in it for me? And if you don't give me what I expect, then I can tear up this contract. But marriage is meant to be a covenant. I like what the Jewish rabbi, Jonathan Sachs, said about the difference between a contract and a covenant. This is good. Look what he says. A contract is a transaction. 
A covenant is a relationship. Or to put it slightly differently, a contract is about interests. A covenant is about identity. It is about you and me coming together to form us. That is why contracts benefit, but covenants transform. Isn't that good? I mean, that's the difference between a contract and a covenant. And if you can't remember all of that and you're trying to explain it or you're trying to think about it later, let's just shorten it to this. A contract is a transaction. A covenant is a relationship. You see the difference? A transaction versus a relationship. Marriage is used throughout the Bible. The Old Testament, New Testament. Marriage is used throughout the Bible as a metaphor, as a parallel relationship of the relationship between God and his people. God invites his people into a covenant relationship. We, as followers of Jesus, are in a covenant relationship with God that began long ago. And this covenant that we're in, it has many rituals. It has many symbols. Now, we don't normally call them that. But what we just did, as we participated in communion, that is, that is a ritual. It's a good ritual. It's a ritual that, that symbolizes the covenant. We remember Jesus, and we, we partake of the bread and the cup. You see, those symbols and those emblems and those rituals are so important. They are signs of the covenant. But what is at the core of this covenant with God? That's an important question. What is the foundation for this covenant? And that's what Moses is supposed to communicate to the Israelites. As they continue on this journey to freedom, God calls Moses up the mountain to begin to initiate this covenant, and he wants to tell him what it's based on so that he can tell the people the basis, the foundation for this covenant. And so in Exodus 34, God tells Moses, chisel out two more stone tablets. What happened to the first ones? Do you remember? When he came down the mountain and he saw the golden calf fiasco, he threw them down, they were destroyed. And now God says, make two more stone tablets, ascend the mountain, and God will initiate this covenant with Moses and with his people, the Israelites. Skip down to verse 10 of chapter 34. Then the Lord said, I am making a covenant with you. Before all your people, I will do wonders never before done in any nation in all the world. The people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. Obey what I command you today. I will drive out before you the Amorites, Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land where you are going, or they will be a snare among you. Verse 13, break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, and cut down their Asherah poles. Do not worship any other god. For the Lord, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. <laughs> There's a lot going on in those few verses. But clearly, God is making a covenant with his people. And this covenant has vows, doesn't it? Now, we don't, again, we don't call them that, but that's what God is saying. God is standing before his people and he's saying, here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I pledge to you. I am going to do wonders among you. Wonders that the world has not seen. Actually, if you look very closely, that is creation language. The same kind of word used back in Genesis. 
when God establishes his relationship with people. And then after the flood, same kind of language, this creation language, God says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do wonders among you, among all the people of the world. And not only that, I'm going to drive out, drive away any people group that threatens you, that threatens the covenant that I am making with you. God says, I pledge to be with you. I pledge to protect you, to provide for you. Well, there's also vows that his people are supposed to make. As for them, God says, just be faithful to me. Just be faithful to me. When God drives out these people groups, you go in and you destroy their idols, tear down their altars. Do not make a treaty with any of these people groups. Now the word there, treaty, it's the same Hebrew word used for covenant earlier. When God said, I'm making a covenant with you, it's the same word. But isn't it interesting that the English translation changes it to treaty? The idea is that you can only be in a covenant relationship exclusively with God. You can't make another covenant with another deity, with another idol, with another God. Because when you do, you break this covenant with Yahweh, the one and only God. So don't make treaties, don't make covenants with these other idols, with these other pagan gods. God goes on. He says, I am a jealous God. In fact, he says, my name is Jealous. Now, that's one of the names of God you don't see on T-shirts very often, do you? We don't put that on bumper stickers and bracelets. But God says, I'm a jealous God. It's who I am. And what that means is God desires and God deserves our exclusive allegiance and worship. And when we do anything else, When we go to anything, anyone else, the idols of this world, for what we need most, we break that covenant. We are unfaithful to God. And God stands before us, and he pledges his love and faithfulness, and he says, will you do the same? Don't make treaties. Tear down those idols. Don't bow down to those false gods. Essentially, God is giving his people a ring, making a vow, pledging his love and faithfulness and asking them to do the same. But let's back up. Let's back up for a minute because we still haven't really answered our question. What is at the core of the covenant? What is the foundation? The the vows are important. These pledges, these promises, these, these commitments, they are important. The symbols, the rituals, those are important. But what is the foundation? Look back at verse five. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him, with Moses, and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. God says to Moses, are you ready? I'm I'm entering into this covenant relationship with you. I am vowing, I am pledging my love and faithfulness. What is at the core of this covenant? What is the foundation? At the core of the covenant is God's character. 
It is God himself who stands at the foundation of this covenant he is making. making. God's covenant is based on God's character. He is the Lord. And he describes himself. He says, I am compassionate. I am gracious. I am slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And when the Bible says that God is love and God is faithful, it's not just saying that that's what he does. It's saying that's who he is. God is love. God is faithfulness. His unchanging nature specifically his love and his faithfulness, those things, his character, his nature, serves as the foundation for this covenant. That's good news. That's a solid rock. That is a foundation. God, the God of love, the God of faithfulness. That's what the covenant that we are invited into, that's what it's based on. But in his self-description, there's a little bit more, isn't there? It's not just love and compassion. His short bio that he shares with Moses takes kind of an unexpected turn back in verse 7. Yes, he abounds in love and he is forgiving and faithful, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generations. How interesting. Now, some of us would like to take our eraser and just erase that part. That sounds harsh. You know, what's interesting is, is this collection of descriptions, this, this paragraph, this bio, if you will, of God, it becomes a recurring theme throughout the Old Testament. It's folded into the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. You see it again in Numbers 14, verse 18. You see it in Nehemiah chapter 9, Psalm 103, and on and on. This description here, spoken by God about himself, becomes a confessional statement of God's people. They proclaim and declare who God is. God who abounds in love and faithfulness, but also punishes the sin of the people. You see it over and over again. You say, well, isn't this a contradiction? Doesn't this sound strange that God is love, but he's also jealous? That God is gracious, but also just? He forgives, but he also punishes? He abounds in love and faithfulness for thousands, but he also leaves, he doesn't leave the guilty unpunished for generations to come. When we look at that, many of us feel the tension and we should. These descriptions of God, they highlight the tension that we need to see. We need to feel it. We need to feel that tension. How is God both deliverer and enforcer? How does he pour out grace and justice at the same time? And every time this confessional statement was made by God's people throughout Scripture, throughout history, every time they felt the tension. And every time we read it in Scripture, we feel the tension. And we should. Because that tension moves us toward some type of resolution, doesn't it? We don't like tension. We don't like awkward conversations. We don't like to be in a situation where you can just feel the tension. You ever been in a situation like that? I mean, it's just awkward. You can feel the tension. You just want to back out of it. 
there's something in most of us that wants to resolve tension. And so we try to do the same with this one. If the very nature, the character of God is the foundation, is the core of our covenant relationship with God, then we need to get our minds around this, right? We can't live with this tension. We gotta do something about it. And so what do we do? Typically, we try to reconcile that tension. We try to resolve that tension And we usually do it by choosing one or the other. We'll choose this side and say, God is loving and gracious. But isn't he also judged? Well, yeah, I know there's some scriptures about God being the judge and God's wrath and sin is bad. But let's let's just kind of put those over here because God is love and and grace. and, And, you know, it doesn't really matter what you do because why would a good God sin good people to hell and and so we just kind of camp out here to resolve the tension or we choose this side there is judgment God is wrath we we want justice well isn't God also love and and isn't there grace yeah there's some verses about that but that doesn't really fit into our agenda over here so let's just kind of park those over here and let's just really talk about judgment and let's, let's scare people into heaven. And that's sometimes how we try to resolve the tension. But maybe the tension isn't ours to resolve. I mean, God said this about himself, didn't he? Is it possible that God takes care of the tension for us? Shouldn't we let him resolve the tension that we perceive in his own character? Rather than us telling God who he is, Shouldn't we just allow him to be who he is? You see, in our longing for a resolution to this tension about the nature of God, you know what God does? It's almost like God grabs us by the hand or he puts his arm around us and he says, come with me, let's go. And he takes us to a hill outside of Jerusalem. He takes us to Calvary. He takes us to the foot of the cross. And he says, look at this. If you want resolution for the tension, here it is. This is it. You see, the very place where God's love and God's wrath converge, they come together. And even in our minds, as we picture a cross, there is an intersection, isn't there? There's an intersection That is the intersection of God's love, his grace, his mercy, and also justice and judgment and God's wrath. The cross of Christ seals our covenant with God. It's where his love and his holiness converge. It's where mercy and justice meet. It's where forgiveness of sins and punishment for sins both happen simultaneously. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He himself, talking about Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. If you're familiar with this passage, you know Peter is reaching back to the Old Testament and quoting a longer version of this from Isaiah 53, verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment, 
You see that word? Remember, sin has to be punished. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds, we are healed. Justice and judgment require punishment of sin. God is holy, and he cannot be in the presence of anything unholy. God is just, and justice demands that sin is punished. So often we cry for justice. We better be careful what we ask for, because justice means sin is punished. At the same time, God is loving. God is gracious. So at the cross, he provides forgiveness of our sins while also punishing our sins. But we don't receive the punishment. Jesus took it for us. By his wounds, we are healed. The punishment that brought us peace with God was upon him. Just as God established a covenant of love with the Israelites, he establishes a covenant of love with us grounded in his character, sealed by his mercy and his justice and symbolized by the cross of Christ. Back in our Exodus story, Moses' request of God is what prompts God's introduction of himself and thus the basis for the covenant. I want you to notice what Moses asks for. Exodus 34 verse 8. Moses bowed to the ground at once, and he worshiped. Lord, he said, if I have found favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. Remember that word, take us as your inheritance. What is Moses' request of God? He says, Lord, we need you to go with us. We need you to tabernacle among us. We need you to join us in this human endeavor we call life and show us the way. We need you to do as my dad used to pray around the dinner table every night, to guide, guard, and direct us. God, we need you with us. And what does God do? He establishes this covenant relationship with his people, with Israel. And he joins them in this relationship in spite of their sin. In spite of their sin. Moses says, I know, I know we're a stiff-necked people. We're stubborn, we're rebellious, I know. But please, in spite of all of that, please, Lord, go with us. And God does. We need the same thing, don't we? We need the same thing. Our prayer should be, Lord, go with us. Join us in this human endeavor we call life and show us the way. Join us. And what does God do? God says, I'm with you. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Jesus put on skin and said, I will join you. I will walk with you. Because I love you. And it wasn't in spite of our sin. Do you remember God with Israel? We're stiff-necked people. Yeah, we're rebellious, but please, Lord. And God basically says, in spite of your sin. For us, it's not in spite of our sin. It's because of our sin that he joins us. 
It's because of our sin that Jesus, the word, became flesh and dwelt among us. It's because of our sin that he went to the cross. And so we go all the way from Exodus, all the way from captivity in Egypt, all the way to Calvary, to Jesus. It is the story of the Bible. It all points to Jesus. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. There's that word, inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Do you understand what's happening there? God is inviting us into a covenant relationship with him through Jesus. And he doesn't say, I want you to sign on the dotted line here. He doesn't give us a lot of fine print. This isn't a contract. This is a relationship. This isn't a transaction. This is about transformation. He invites us into this relationship and he pledges and promises his love and faithfulness. He's not going anywhere. This covenant is based on his character and God is love and God is faithful. But wait a minute, God also punishes sin. That's right, he does. And that's what he did at the cross. He punished Jesus for your sin and my sin, which makes it possible for us to be in relationship with a holy God. And he says, will you pledge your love and faithfulness to me? Don't make treaties with the idols of the world. Man, they'll look good. They'll make promises to you. Don't break this covenant for a false covenant. Be faithful. So we enter into this covenant relationship. And at baptism, when we confess our faith, in Jesus. God clothes us with Christ. He raises us to walk this new life with a new identity, new purpose, new hope. And we live in relationship with him. And the things that we do because of that covenant, worshiping him, serving him, all the things that we do, trying to conform to his will, trying to make decisions with our lives, with our resources, with everything that honor him, all of that is in response to who he is and what he has done. We don't do those things to earn his love. You see, that's a transaction. That's a contract. I gotta do more. I gotta do more to earn God's favor. You, you can't do enough. We do those things in response to his love, to his faithfulness. Because we are in a covenant relationship with him through Jesus. There's no better place to be than in relationship with God. And if you don't have that, God gives you the freedom of choice. He loves you so much, he lets you choose. He doesn't force you. He lets you choose have you chosen him? Have you chosen to have your sins forgiven because of what Jesus did at the cross? 
Have you chosen to experience new life because of what God did with Jesus at the empty tomb? God stands in front of you and the world and he pledges his love and his faithfulness to you. And he just asks you to pledge it back. In response to who he is and what he's done, just be faithful. Are you faithful to God? If you're ready to make that confession, if you're ready to be baptized, don't wait any longer. Or maybe you've been thinking about it and you're not quite sure what it means. Ask someone, ask your parent, ask a minister, ask a shepherd, ask a friend, someone in your Bible class, ask someone. Say, will you, will you open up the Bible with me? I got a few questions. Please continue on the journey. But if today you're ready, make it known. Let's do it. In just a minute, a couple of our shepherds and their wives will be in the parlor. It's a little room behind me. Before you leave here, if you need to be encouraged, if you need to, to have someone pray over you, just stop by there. They'd love to pray with you, to visit with you. Just stop by there and visit with them. Or you can come down to the front and we'll pray for you today. Let's stand together and sing now. Lord, I come, I confess. Bowing here, I find my rest. And without you, I fall apart. You're the one that guides my heart. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. My one defense, my righteousness. Oh God, how I need you. Where sin runs deep, your grace is more. Where grace is found is where you are. And where you are, Lord, I am free. Christ in me. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. My one defense, my righteousness. Oh, God, how I need you. I need thee, oh, I need thee.